you take a copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Come back to our series today in this book, which we have been in for quite some time. This wonderful treasury of the Gospel, uh, written to remind us and remind God's church of the riches of God's grace, which He has lavished upon us through our redemption in Christ, and which He calls us to display to the world so that His glory and grace and power might be clearly seen through the transformed lives of His people. So turn with me if you have a copy of God's Word. If you need a Bible, there's some under the um, seatbacks in front of you uh, on the racks, and you feel free to to pick one of those up and turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Here in this last section of Paul's letter, he turns his attention, having, having looked at the, the, the riches of God's grace that belong to us through our union with Christ and His death and resurrection on the cross and how that's to, to be moved out in unity and in purity together as God's people. He turns his attention now to how that grace and glory are, are to be displayed specifically in the, in the foundational relationships within the household, between husbands and wives and, and parents and children and masters and servants. And, and my original plan when I was outlining this whole series was to cover this section in one week, and then I thought better of that, and I changed it to give a week to each of those, marriage, parenting, and, and work relationships. However, the more that I have, have prayed and studied and considered these verses and the very practical import they have for us, particularly in our day and in our culture, I've decided that over the next several weeks, we will give particular attention to what God's Word says here about marriage and the relationship of husband and wife, and then address that of, of, of fathers and children and, and masters and servants. So you might think of this as a little, a little series within a series on God's work and grace in the family as we focus on the gospel impact of those specific relationships. And for some of us here, much of what will be said in these weeks will not necessarily be new. For others, perhaps it will be very new. But for all of us, it will be different. Different, vastly different from what you see on TV and in the movies, what you read about in the news or, or books, vastly different than uh, what you hear and see portrayed certainly and promoted in the popular culture and broader society regarding marriage and the family. And for many, it may be vastly different than what you have experienced or even are currently experiencing in your own marriage. Or if you are single, maybe then you envision for marriage, should that be God's will in your life. Which is why it's so vital for us to hear and see and to, and to understand the refreshing and renewing and reforming truth about marriage as God designed it and intended it and upholds it in His Word. And as we know, our society as a whole, and even in the church at times, has embraced a low, worldly, self-centered, secular, utilitarian view of the institution of marriage. So much so that we find ourselves now at a place where, where we have totally redefined and distorted it to be something almost totally opposite than what God created it to be. So it's no wonder that when 
people come in contact and, and are confronted with God's design and purpose for marriage, it comes across as so countercultural and so incomprehensible that many people say, you can't be serious. You know, it wasn't that different in Jesus' day. His own disciples, upon hearing Jesus expound upon God's vision for marriage in Matthew 19, said, if that's the case, it's, it's better not to marry. But that is not the case. Marriage is a beautiful thing. And when it's understood and pursued as God's design, as God designed and desires it to be, it's marvelous. So I enter these next couple of weeks and into this teaching on marriage, recognizing that there are potentially big obstacles standing in the way of our, our hearing and our receiving and our living out God's design and desire for husbands and wives. There's the obstacle of our own sin and our selfish desires. There's the obstacle, again, of the prevailing culture and worldview that says that this view is not just, not just outdated, but actually says it's now immoral. There's the obstacle of perhaps, again, failed personal experiences in our lives, whether in our parents, our friends, or even perhaps our own marriages. But perhaps the most significant obstacle is the fact that Satan wants nothing more than to handicap and harm us in this area of, of the family by getting us to distort and deviate from God's perfect plan and purposes for us in marriage. And all these can stand in the way and cloud or even block our vision of what marriage can and should be according to what God says. And that's what we're getting ready to hear. We're getting ready to hear what God says. This is not my view. It's not the, the prevailing world's view. This is God's Word. And if for no other reason than what God says is true and it's right and it's good and, and it's the only perfect rule that we have for life and for godliness, we do well to listen and to trust and to pray that He would give us grace and enable us to follow Him. God is in the business of removing obstacles and revealing His truth and grace and renewing broken and wayward and, and struggling lives such that His glory is displayed in us. And so my, my hope and prayer today and over the next couple of weeks is that God, by His grace and through the power of His Spirit, will help us see and understand and embrace His amazing an awesome design for marriage such that we might reflect and display His grace and glory in the gospel to the world around us who needs to see this. And so let's turn our attention now as I read from God's Word in Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 22. Let's give attention now. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes 
and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Father, would you add your blessing to the reading and the hearing and the teaching of your word now, that we might be conformed more and more into the likeness of our Savior. Amen. So before we get into looking at what Paul says in Ephesians about the different ways wives and husbands are to relate to and live with one another in the bonds of marriage, I want to go back to the foundation of God's design and purpose for marriage. Indeed, Paul does this himself in this passage in verses 31 and 32. There he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, what, what could be called God's marriage manifesto. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he interprets that verse in the context of God's overarching purpose, saying, This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Paul does two things in these verses. First, he points out the, the original plan for marriage designed and established by God at the very creation of the world. And then he points to the ultimate purpose of, for marriage, which is to reflect and display the covenant relationship of God with His people, a relationship that is, is redeemed and restored through the union of Jesus Christ, the Bridegroom, and His bride, the church, brought about by His sacrificial and sanctifying work on the cross. And the mystery of marriage which God reveals to us is that marriage in His original plan, God's original plan from the very creation of the world, was for the purpose of defining and displaying in a, in a unique, supernatural, spiritual, yet very existential and tangible way, the glory of His covenant love and faithfulness to His people through our redemption and union in Christ. And therefore, the, the Spirit-filled life of a believing husband and wife together in marriage is, is, as Paul demonstrates here, patterned upon that of Christ and His church. In other words, marriage is, not meant ultimately, marriage is meant ultimately to be a showcase of God's glory and grace in the Gospel. And Paul calls that a mystery. Not in the sense that we cannot un see it and understand it, but in the sense that, that we need Him to reveal it to us. And He has revealed it to us. We can't understand this on our own. But God reveals it to us through His work in Christ. And, and I want to go back to Genesis where Paul quotes from and, and ask God to help us see His original plan and ultimate purpose for marriage. So, so turn back in your Bibles, if you will. and Keep your finger there in Ephesians. We'll come back there. But to Genesis chapter 2. The very second chapter, the beginning of the Bible account of God's creation. And let me just read through this. We, most of us are probably familiar with this account, but, but some may not be. And so I want to read back through beginning in chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, having placed Adam in the garden and given him the instructions to, to not eat of the tree, He says, the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. 
Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the, every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. First off, notice that marriage is, is God's plan from the very, very beginning. The effects of sin that we see in the very next chapter of Genesis were devastating to that, to that one flesh relationship of marriage between Adam and Eve, and we still see its damaging effects in marriages today. But it was not always that way. The climax of the whole creation account recorded for us in Genesis 1 and 2 is this simple but beautiful marriage joining together the first man and woman as wife. Both whom you will recall are created in the image of God. Marriage is the final blessing given to mankind in the garden, which is why when, when Jesus speaks of marriage in His teaching, when Paul and the other New Testament writers address God's plan for this institution, they don't go back to Genesis 3 and said, well, say, well, you know, this is how it really is, so let's just try to make the best of it if we can. No, they go back to God's original plan, His blueprint, His design in creation because the very purpose of Jesus' coming was to make all things new, to, to bring about a redemption and a restoration and a, a recreation, if you will, of man and His created purpose to glorify and, God and enjoy fellowship with His Creator. So what is God's plan for marriage in that, in that original design? Well, first, God's design... For God designed marriage to show that He created man as a relational being. We are created for relationship. First of all, with God, but also with one another. And, and, and this is because God Himself is relational. We see that back in Genesis 1.27. God says, let us make man in our image. A reference to the, to the triune nature and relationship of the one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God created man in His image. In His image, He created them male and female. We were created for relationship. And that's why God Himself declares after creating Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. By Himself, He was incomplete. Something was still not right. And so God sets out both to show man his need for relationship and to meet that need in a very intentional and, and very specific way by creating the woman in his image as well from and for the man. And so as Adam begins to classify and name all the animals, God's not, not just trying to set up a, a classification system for creation. He's up to something more. He is, he's helping Adam see that something is not right. 
None of these creatures really seems to, to fit as a companion, as a suitable partner for him. And, and as he's going along, Adam is realizing none of these creatures fit. They don't cut it. So what does God do? He creates a perfect match. And he does it by, by taking the very flesh of the man and creating the woman. He doesn't just take a monkey or an elephant or a giraffe and, and, and make them work. No, he creates from man in his own image, in God's own image, a perfect helper, a completer, if you will. Someone who, who made up what he lacked and was suitable to him. And then, and then look at this. God brings her to the man. He doesn't put her out there among the animals hoping that, that, that Adam will just figure out somehow that she's the one. No, like a father bringing his daughter to the groom, God brings the woman and presents her to the man. And Adam says, this is the one. And friends, God's design in marriage was to, to help us see our need for relationship and then to provide a means of meeting that need in a way that, that no, other, no other person or animal or created thing can. Now, hear this. Marriage is not God's soul or even His ultimate answer to meeting that need for relationship, as we'll see in a minute. And I say that because it's, it's clear in Scripture that it's not God's will for everyone to be married. Paul himself stayed single for the very purpose of being unencumbered in his devotion and his service to Christ. And so, so the singleness is, is not some second tier of relationship. But God's design in marriage is to demonstrate that deep-seated need of our hearts for an intimate, unique, unified relationship in the context of human relationships to be His designed and, and gifted provision for that need. Marriage demonstrates our need for relationship, but it also was designed to demonstrate the priority of that covenant relationship over all other relationships. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to and be united to his wife. God intended marriage to establish a new, committed, covenant relationship that would, would supersede all other relationships, including the closest family connections. Now, to leave your father and mother doesn't mean just a, a, a necessary a physical leaving. In fact, in early days, and even today in some societies, families will remain living with each other or at least in close proximity. Nor does it mean a severing of all ties or, or cutting off of relationships with family and friends and relatives. But in marriage, there's a new priority. There's a new allegiance, if you will. There's a breaking off of a, of a dependence and a reliance on others to cling in relationship to your spouse and form a new family unit. I had the blessing of growing up in a particularly close family. And I'm thankful for that. It's a gift of God. I had a great relationship with my parents. I still have very close, strong relationships with my siblings and their families. Yet, in matters where choices have to be made or differences might arise between my commitment, my allegiance to my wife and to those in my family, there is no choice. I am joined as one to my wife. She is the priority. And marriage is the relationship of ultimate priority over our extended families, over our children, even 
over our closest relationships. And one of God's purposes in marriage is that we might understand covenant commitment. We might understand the priority of that covenant relationship. I'm reminded of this oftentimes, a book I used to have on my shelf, and it was entitled, it's written to husbands, it says, Your wife is not your mama. And that's true. And wives, your husband is not your daddy. Among all our human relationships, for those who are married, there is one that supersedes them all, and that is the relationship of husband and wife. Marriage is God's plan that shows we were created for intimate, unique, unified relationship, and it shows the priority of the husband-wife relationship over all other human relationships. But not only is marriage a priority commitment, it was also designed by God as a permanent commitment. Permanent commitment. A man will leave his father and mother, will be united to his wife, and then, listen to this, the two will become one flesh. We kind of we read through that and it's like, yeah, that's some just, you know, some analogy that, that, you know, it's hard to understand and it is. But there is a, what God is saying here is there is a union in marriage that goes beyond just the promise of, of two people. It goes beyond just the, the pronouncement of a pastor or the declaration of a, a state law. There is a union in marriage that is supernatural, that is a divine act of God which makes each person a part of the other such that Jesus would say in reference to this, what God has joined together, no man can separate. God took Eve out of Adam's body and He created her and He brought her to Adam and then He he joins them back together again in a union that is characterized as one flesh. God unites them in a bond that cannot be broken without great pain, without great hurt, without great suffering. And this permanence and this union is reflected in the, in the physical union of, of sex, which Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians as becoming one body together. And that's why, that's why uh, sex and, and, and uh, the, the acts of sexuality can bring immense pleasure and joy and fulfillment as a blessing from God in the bonds of marriage as they were designed and intended to be. But they can also bring a great source of dissatisfaction and pain and emptiness anywhere outside of that relationship. God created man and woman in His image, physically, emotionally different, but perfectly suited to complete one another. A completion and a union intended to be displayed in the bonds of marriage alone. And Paul says, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. Why? Because they are indeed part of the husband's body having been joined together as one. Which is why it's only in the most dire and destructive of circumstances that God even makes room for dissolving this union. And never without much pain involved. Marriage reflects a permanent commitment to one another for life. And and brothers and sisters, in our day, we need to renew and hold firm to that vision for marriage more than ever. So God designed marriage to reflect and meet our need as relational beings, to demonstrate the priority of of that covenant relationship, to establish the permanence of that relationship. And lastly, God designed marriage to display the utter trust and transparency that's to exist in that relationship. At the end of Genesis, we read, the man and his wife were both naked 
and they were not ashamed. There's a mountain of truth in those words. We know that after they sinned, Adam and Eve, one of the first things we're told is that they realized they were naked and they were shamed. They were embarrassed. But why? It was because before they turned against God, there was a level of transparency, a level of trust in their relationship that enabled them to neither fear the other's condemnation nor the need to hide their own sinfulness. And you're saying, well, of course, Warren. They didn't need to fear condemnation or, or uh, hide their sinfulness because they were perfect, and that is true. But remember, this is God's design. This is His blueprint for marriage. And God knew even then that it would, it would not be a relationship between two perfect people for very long. And the fact that they were naked and not ashamed is, is owing not just to their physical and, and spiritual perfection, but also to the, the covenant love and commitment that is rooted in being so united to one another that there's, there's absolute trust and transparency. And so when Adam and Eve sinned and that covenant relationship with God was broken, suddenly that trust and that transparency with one another was also fractured. And sin brings into that relationship, an element of shame that led them to feel a need to guard themselves, to hide, not only from God, but in a sense, from one another as well. And again, we continue to see the effects of that in so many ways. Yet God's intention in the most intimate of human relationships is that it would be one of utter trust and transparency. And Christ comes and, and redeems and restores that so that now we can stand before God and before one another in openness and honesty in Christ. Now, turn back with me to Ephesians. Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 to help us see God's plan for marriage. But then he says, the mystery of all of this is God's ultimate purpose for marriage. It's meant to display, to reflect, to be a, a living parable, if you will, of God's love for His people and his relationship established, the, 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 the one union, unified relationship established through his son Jesus Christ. Now think about that. The ultimate purpose of marriage is not our happiness. Although when lived out as God designed, it will result in that. But that's why so many marriages struggle. It's because we think it's all about fulfilling our own needs. But it's not. Marriage was created. It was patterned on God's covenant love for His people. And Scripture is full of analogies, even as, as Sandy read for us in Isaiah, that use marriage as a picture of God's relationship with His beloved, His people. And that picture is brought into real life flesh and blood in the coming of Jesus Christ as the bridegroom for His bride. God's covenant love is restored and, and fulfilled and poured out through His Son's sacrifice on the cross and His resurrection from the grave in order to bring us, all of us, who follow Him into loving, permanent union with Himself. And what's important for us to understand is that all of the reasons that we just, we just looked at and we mentioned for God's design in marriage, relational fulfillment, uh, priority and permanence, of relationship, utter trust and transparency, all of those are ultimately fulfilled in our being betrothed to Christ through His sacrificial love and His grace bestowed on us. Jesus is the bridegroom 
And we, the church, are His bride. He left His Father and He came down to to hold fast to His bride. He paid the dowry. He paid the bride price to redeem us with His own love. And He bestows upon His church a covenant love that is preeminent and permanent and so unifying that, that we become one with Him for eternity. It's a glorious picture. And Jesus restores us to that relationship with God. And in so doing, He unites us to Himself in such a way that He promises never to leave us or forsake us. That even when we, as His bride, are unfaithful, He will be faithful. And His love so covers over our sin that that we can now stand before God in perfect trust and transparency, naked and unashamed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's why the the breaking of the marriage covenant and the erosion and redefining of marriage in our culture is really an affront to God. It's not just a breaking off of a human relationship. It's not just the the disillusion of a contract. It's not just unfaithfulness of, of one person to another. For the believer, it's a misrepresenting of the gospel and the covenant love of God through Jesus Christ. Jesus laid down His life for you, His bride. He will never leave or forsake her. And God's love for us in Christ, it weathers all the storms. It covers over all kinds of rebellion on our part. And marriage is meant to display that ultimate relationship. The union of Christ with His church. The sacrificial, permanent, trustworthy, transparent, unfailing covenant love of God for His people. And it's only against that background, only against that understanding of the mystery of marriage that we can then begin to engage and understand in the ministry of marriage as husbands and wives that Paul speaks of in Ephesians and that we'll be looking at in the next couple of weeks. Just think about that. God's purpose for our marriages is not that we would just plod through and hopefully make it to the next anniversary. It's not that we would just hang in there. God's purpose for our marriages is ultimately that it would reflect His glory and His love in Christ Jesus. And that in doing that, we would experience the joy and the satisfaction and that love shared together with one whom God has brought us into covenant relationship with. And some of you are saying and thinking, probably most of us, wow, Warren, that sounds great. (laughs) That's a beautiful picture, but it doesn't necessarily reflect reality. My marriage doesn't look like that. There's pain there. There's struggle. Sometimes it does feel as if we're just going through the motions and trying to make it to the next place. And indeed, brothers and sisters, that's true. That's part of living this out on our way to that place where we will meet Jesus perfectly in the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But God calls us and he, he desires for us and He equips us to recover and to restore this vision, this plan, this, this purpose that He has for our marriages. And so I just want to encourage you to, to come in the next few weeks as we look at that, as we, as we rejoice in that, as we, as we confess our need for that. 
but it begins by understanding the plan. Marriage was created by God as a pattern of His own covenant love for us in Christ Jesus. Which means that our own marriages will reflect that covenant relationship only insofar as we know that reality in our own lives. We must begin by saying yes to God's proposal to us in Christ. We must first recognize that our ultimate need for relationship is met not by a husband or a wife, but it's met first and foremost by knowing and loving God, the husband of his people through Jesus Christ, the bridegroom who has come to redeem and is at work even now sanctifying and preparing his bride, the church. We must leave the comfort and the security of all other relationships and things in this world and we must cling to Christ as He clings to us. And we are united with Him by faith. And then we must let His love for us on the cross cover over our sin and our shame and come to Him in full trust and transparency. And then, as we love and are loved by Christ, then our marriages will begin to reflect and begin to display that love in how we love one another. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is that God will help us see His vision, His plan for marriage, and that He will make our marriages, not just in this church, but marriages of all believers, that they would become a showcase for the gospel as we seek to follow Him. And that might speak boldly to our own hearts and to this world. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are our Redeemer. You are the One who came and laid down Your life out of love for Your church that we might be redeemed and restored, that we might be betrothed and wedded to You not because of anything we have done, but because of Your grace and Your faithfulness to Your promises. So God, we pray that You would remind each of us as Your children that we already exist in the perfect marriage. As one who, ones who are redeemed and restored to you as our perfect husband. And Father, we pray that you would even now be at work in our lives. And Father, for those who are married and in the relationship we have with one another, Lord, help us to see your vision, your design, and your good that you have for us as we walk according to that. Lord, help us to shine brightly in this culture. It's abandoned, not just your design in marriage, but even your very word. Lord, help us to uphold that. And Father, where there has been hurt and pain and maybe even still exists in this context, Father, where there are those who desire to be married or who, Lord, have not yet experienced this, we pray, Father, that you will be at work softening our hearts, helping us to be trustworthy and transparent in those relationships. And Father, that you will work to enable us to live as you've called us to live as husband and wives. 
And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.